the necessity of contemplation, which is our, our theme, one of the ways I came to this was through reading a book which was made quite a, a stir a while ago, it's getting up to 20 years ago now, called The Stripping of the Altars. Do any of you read, read that? It was by a uh, Cambridge historian called Eamon Duffy. It was a study of religion in England just before and then just after the Reformation. And he was one of a group of theologians who were coming along who were trying to uh, revisit, if you like, or revise the traditional understanding of the Reformation that we have, certainly that I was taught in school, you know, that it was a great movement of liberation and the English people were, were just longing to get rid of the shackles of the medieval church, just as they're longing, longing now to get rid of the shackles of Brussels bureaucracy, <laughs> maybe. But as you might expect, you know, that, that picture wasn't totally true. Um, history is written by the winning side, as we know. And Eamon Duffy's book presents a slightly different view of it. And he suggests that the English people actually were terribly traumatized by the forcible removal of their traditional religion and have never quite recovered since. As we know, the English are not a very spiritual people by, by reputation. As the joke goes, that's why they invented cricket, to give them an impression of eternity. A game which takes several days to play and never seems to start. But they certainly were a very spiritual people, I would say. And when he's talking about the, the church on the eve of the Reformation, it, the picture he presents shows that religion was very much uh, an in integral, a part and parcel of people's daily lives. It was written into the fabric of their daily lives in an agricultural society. And through that, people had a, a simple, perhaps, but an unforced, a direct, straightforward intimacy with God. I think it's true to say that, that most people had that sense of the closeness, the reality of God. Of course, there are other things you could say about medieval Christianity. It had its dark side, and people were reminded of what their fate could be if they weren't uh, true to their religion by all those doom paintings that you see in medieval churches. But they knew, I think it's true to say also, that the God who might judge you is above all loving and merciful God. And as I say, Duffy certainly suggests that this was the kind of attitude that people had uh, in a simple, um, unforced kind of way. But it was something that we lost because when the divisions in the church took place, what became very important was not so much knowing God, but defining what you believe about God, because it became very important you know, to make sure that you were being properly Catholic or properly Protestant or whatever it is you think you need to be in order to know God. You had to define this very carefully. And that's where we stayed more or less ever since, I think, 
until very recent times. Um, and the growth of the ecumenical movement has gone along with a new awareness that what we're about in our religion is not being this or that, you know, not being faithful to one denomination or another, but simply knowing God. And that really is what contemplation is, I would say. It's not knowing about God, it's simply knowing God. I was at Westminster Cathedral for a while leading something called Centre for Spirituality and during that time we had a meeting on ecumenism in the cathedral hall with Cardinal Murphy O'Connor, who was the Archbishop, and a visitor from Rome, Cardinal Casper, who's in charge of ecumenical affairs. And the, the hall was filled with black-suited priests no one else was there. And it's all rather oppressive, I thought. And people kept saying, very important that we are proper, true Catholics, and make sure that we keep everyone else out. It was that sort of idea. And after a while, I felt moved to get up and say, this formidable gathering was not easy to do. I said, in the sort of thing that I'm doing, the Center for Spirituality, what we're about is just knowing God and how we pray and how we grow in our knowledge of God. And in this sort of work, the divisions between the denominations don't matter, or at least they're not very apparent. And I said, I think there's an important lesson there for how we should do ecumenism. Well, neither cardinal seemed very impressed <laughs> by my contribution. But I do think that's true, that what is the heart of our faith, of our religion, is God, and knowing God, and how we know God. And that's what we need to make the center of it all. But it's something that we lost, to some extent, in the Reformation period, and it's something that we've been trying to recapture more recently. And one of the great movements in that way, of course, was the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, uh, which made that great call for what it called aggiornamento, bringing up to date, which doesn't mean giving in to the spirit of the age, the secular spirit, but presenting what, is, what we see as our faith, as our gospel, in a new way which will attract people and get through to people today. And the way in which we were to go about that was the other watchword, what they call ressourcement, going back to the sources, going back to the center and essence of uh, our faith. And I think what Vatican II suggests is that when it talks about these matters, that genuine renewal in the church is something that can only come through renewal of the contemplative dimension. And it was that call to renew that dimension of our faith that attracted people like John Main and uh, Thomas Keating and also I think probably um, Thomas Merton, the great figures in the rediscovery of the contemplative way from about the 1960s onwards. But John Chapman um, comes a bit before this movement. 
He died in 1933, and he gives the impression of being a somewhat isolated figure. There wasn't anyone else around at the time doing quite the sort of thing that he was doing. But when people uh, get onto it, it's something that they feel very attracted by and want to keep coming back to when they read his letters and the way he presents uh, what he sees as important for people. I first came across the name of John Chapman in the book Word into Silence by John Main, a series of talks that he gave. There's one on the tradition of the mantra in which he traces the antecedents of what became his way of prayer. He looks back to people like Teresa of Avila, the Jesus prayer in the Orthodox tradition, uh, the cloud of unknowing. And he quotes the cloud of unknowing, pray not in many words, but in a little word of one syllable. Fix this word fast to your heart, so that it's always there, come what may. With this word, you will suppress all thoughts. And then he goes on, Abbot Chapman, in his famous letter of Nicholas 1920 from Downside, describes the simple, faithful use of a mantra, which he had discovered more from his own courageous perseverance in prayer than from teachers. Well, I'm going to give you later a copy of that so-called famous letter, and you can check out for yourself whether you think this is right. I think Maine's being a bit optimistic, because Man Matt Chapman doesn't talk about mantras at all, and in fact doesn't talk about any particular way of praying. But the sort of things that he says about prayer are very much in tune with what, what we think of as, as meditation, as taught by John Maine. He says he had re rediscovered a simple, enduring tradition of prayer that entered the West through monasticism and first entered Western monasticism through John Cassian in the late 4th century. Cassian himself received it from the holy men of the desert who placed its origin back beyond living memory to apostolic times. Well, when I first came across that little bit, I thought, well, this famous letter is not famous to me. I've never heard of it, or of him either, for that matter. But later on, when I did come across Chapman's work, started to read it, um, I, like many people, I was very attracted by it. And since then, I've come across other people who know the Book of Letters, and for whom it's become one of their most prized books of spiritual writing, you know, the one that you want to keep with you, um, keep going back to, maybe not reading all of it, but dipping into it from time to time and going back to it. And I think you find that, don't you, Sidi? Yes, yes. Yes. Really? <laughs> yes. And I, you know, I've come across other people who, uh, who think like that. So maybe after today, it will become a book that you yourselves will want to get and look, keep dipping into and looking back to. It is a book of uh, individual letters, so it's not the sort of thing that you'd want to read. Um, 
all in one go, but it's, it's good to have with you and to keep referring to. So I'll, in a moment, I'll just give you some background on Chapman's life so you can see where he's coming from. But just to, to get into it, I'd just like to read you one short letter, which is part of a sequence of um, 16 letters written to the same person from June 1914 to January 1931. The, the book is divided into letters to lay people and letters to members of religious communities. And these, this series of letters, which I'm going to quote from, is rather quaintly addressed to one living in the world. <laughs> which in the language of the time means a lay person. Now, before I read it, there is one caveat that we must make, and that is that Chapman very often speaks about meditation. But when he does, he does not mean what we think of as meditation as taught by John Lane. He means something more like the Ignatian way of meditation, or the discursive use of the mind to think about a particular theme or idea, or scripture verse, whatever it is. So just bear in mind that that's what he means by meditation. So writing in January the 20th, 1925, to this person, he says, I think you are quite right not to try meditation. No doubt meditation as a mental exercise would be possible. In this sense, it always is. But don't trouble, simply pray. All that you say shows that your imagination is not of any use to you religiously. You like a crib or a picture simply as a focus. That is, not to help your imagination by exciting it, but on the contrary, to still it. I shouldn't worry about how to say the rosary this person has obviously asked something about that. The easiest thing is to have some simple thought in connection with each mystery. For example, the first mystery, that Our Lady simply gives herself up to God, or the last mystery, just heaven, and so forth. If you try to make a mental picture, in brackets, composition of place, you will, you will waste energy and get no good. As to your uselessness, that is a good feeling. We can't be useful to God. He can do without us perfectly well. But if he chooses to use us, it is a great honor. Only we don't generally know that he is using us. The only thing that matters is now. I mean that we have to be exactly in God's will united actively and passively with what he has arranged for us to be and to do, so that at every moment we are quite simply in touch with God because we're wishing to do what he wants of us and to be as we find he wishes us to be. There is no other perfection than this. Tomorrow and yesterday are quite of secondary importance. 
Well, even in that short letter, I think you can see some of the themes of what we think of as contemplation coming through. Um, the fact, for instance, that we need to let go of the imagination if we are to be still and silent and just in touch with God. Because the imagination can be very helpful uh, and useful in some ways, but it can easily take you off into fantasy, unreality, um, something which is just not where you are here and now. Some people even say, I think John Lane said it, that imagination is the enemy of prayer. Well, enemy of contemplative prayer, let's say. So it's something that we need to let go of. And when you first come across that thought, it can be slight, a slightly disturbing one. You know, I, I started on this spiritual way through St. Ignatius when I came to Ealing. Um, the vicar of the church where I was was a great one for St. Ignatius. And almost the first thing he said to me when I arrived was, I think you ought to do an eight-day retreat, <laughs> which is something that's grown up in the Ignatian way. And if you know his spiritual exercises, uh, they have an enormous value still, I'm sure. Um, but they're designed to help us to enter into our vocation of following Christ. And the particular way he uses is inviting you to meditate in the discursive sense on Christ and the events of his life and to use your imagination. So, for instance, you might take a gospel passage, something like, let's say, the story of the transfiguration, and imagine the scene. It's what um, Ignatius calls composition of place, the, the term that Chapman uses here. Imagine the scene, the people who are there, what's going on, and then put yourself in the picture and see how you react to it. And I always found it hard to do this. People often say, I don't really have an imagination. I, I couldn't do that. It's not true, of course. We all do have an imagination. But it has to be practiced and exercised. And somehow I could never quite get into this, um, though I was drawn to the Ignatian way to begin with and um, wanted to, 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 go, to get into it, to engage with it. But I just found it very hard. Um, and then when people talk about the mysteries of the rosary, the writer uh, who had written to him had obviously been asking something about that. I was once talking to a woman about her, her prayer, and she said, I live on my own. And I spend a lot of time just talking to God as I go about. But I'm not very good at saying the rosary. <laughs> and I thought, well, why do you say that? And she had some friends who said, a true Catholic ought to be praying the rosary. It's something you must do. And she said, I just can't do it. I just can't get into it. So I said, well, that's all right. You know, just look at your talks with God as your prayer, you know. We can be creative and adventurous in what we think of as prayer. We don't have to, uh, to confine it to one way, which everybody has got to do. But having said that, clearly the rosary is a good way of contemplative prayer. It can be. But as you know, the idea is 
that as you're saying the prayers, you are at the same time meditating on one of the mysteries, the Annunciation or the Visitation or the Nativity, whatever it is. And I've never known how to do that. I can say the prayers and give my attention to those, but I can't at the same time think about the mystery. Might be able to at another time, but I can't do the two together. So clearly this person was having the same sort of trouble. That's why Chapman says, don't bother about um, you know, too many thoughts here, just have one simple thought. If you're starting with the Annunciation, just have before you this picture, Mary is giving herself to God. And that's enough. You, you don't have to go any further about with that. As he says, if you try to go into it more, you will waste energy and get no good from it. And then the final part of this letter, when he's talking about being in touch with God's will in the present moment. This is something we'll come back to because it's a key theme in his writing. Uh, tomorrow and yesterday are quite of secondary importance. The really important thing for us is to be in touch with God where we are, here and now, in this moment. Because, because that is where we are, and because also that is where God is. God is not so much in the past or the future, because they've gone or are yet to come. God is in, above all, the present moment. And whatever is going on in the present moment, in some ultimate sense, is God's will. So we need to give ourselves to what is going on here and now. So even in that short letter, I think you can see some of the ways in which Chapman is clearly talking about what we think of as contemplation, our way of meditation. And he does it in a very simple and ordinary kind of way. He doesn't use a lot of high-flown technical language. And in reading the letters, you often get the impression, yeah, he knows what I'm going through. He's there. He's been there before. He knows exactly what this is like and, and how it's difficult to be a person of prayer. He's with me in this. Uh, he knows it all for himself. And that's uh, something that people find very attractive in his, in his writing. So we'll, I'll come back to the letters and look at some more examples of the, the sort of thing that he says. But before we do that, I'll just give you a bit of background on his life. Because if you, if you don't know anything about him, you want to know where he comes from, where he fits into things. So he was born in 1865. He was the son of a canon of Ely Cathedral and clearly was a great scholar. He went to Christ Church, Oxford and received a first-class degree in classical grades. Something that I aspired to, <laughs> but didn't achieve. <laughs> he stayed on at Oxford to study theology, but only took a third, apparently. But during that year uh, of studies at Oxford, he decided that he wanted to be ordained in the Church of England and went to the college at Cudston near Oxford. 
So he was ordained as a deacon and began a curacy in the parish of St. Pancras. But during this time, he found himself uh, increasingly troubled about the position of the Church of England. He had similar doubts, I think, to those of uh, Newman and, and indeed others, and eventually left the parish and was conditionally baptized in the Catholic Church at the Brompton Oratory in 1890. So he was just uh, 25 when he made that move. As well as being a very accomplished scholar, he was a great linguist and a musician, a fine pianist. It makes you sick after a while to hear about people who are so talented in so many ways, doesn't it? <laughs> but anyway, that's how he was. And, but clearly he also had some kind of hankering for what we call the religious life, and first of all tried the Jesuits at Roehampton, but uh, after eight months he decided that that was not his way. And then he went to a Benedictine monastery in Belgium and entered the Benedictine order there, taking the religious name of John. His birth name was Henry. Uh, and then he, he went on to, I won't go through all of this, he went on to other places. For a while he was t the temporary superior of the community called the Island off the coast of Wales when that whole community was received into the Roman Catholic Church. I was once talking to somebody who, who felt that he had a vocation to be a monk and as far as I could tell it had a very genuine vocation of that kind, but he couldn't find the right place to go. And I said, well, you know, it's, it's a bit like marriage, really. You know, you could think, I'd like to be married, but I've got to find the right person. So sim similarly, in religious life, you could say, I'd like to be a monk, but you've got to find the right community to belong to. And this person had tried various different places, but they hadn't worked out. And one of them was Colby Island. Uh, off the southwest coast of Wales. Uh, he, he went there for a while and said, it's terribly cold there, <laughs> even in the height of summer. I said, well, that's rather important because if you're going to be freezing cold all the time, you're not going to be very happy in your monastic life. I lost track, so I didn't know what happened to him after that. Eventually, Chapman made his way to Downside Abbey in Somerset, but during the First World War, uh, he served as an army chaplain and uh, was with the, the troops in France. He lived in the trenches. He refers to this quite briefly in uh, some of his writings, but suffered an injury which led him being sent back to England to hospital uh, in Wiltshire. He returned to France and then at the, towards the end of the war he was transferred to Switzerland because they needed chaplains who could speak many languages to help with the prisoners of war in the camps there and remained there until the armistice. After the war he, he became uh, a monk permanently at Downside Abbey but then was taken off to Rome because as a great scholar, he was involved in 
um, work on the translation of the Bible. And during his lifetime, I think, he was known for two things in particular. One was his scholarly work on scripture and what's called patristics, the study of the first Christian theologians. I suppose all that work is a bit out of date now because things change quite quickly in that field. Uh, throughout his life, Chapman was faithful to something called the Griesbach Hypothesis. Have you heard about the Griesbach Hypothesis? Would you like to know about it? <laughs> well, it's the idea, well, it includes various ideas, but the, the idea that the Gospels were written in the order in which they're presented in the New Testament. So that's why we have them in that order. Matthew first, then Mark, then Luke, then John. Uh, scholars these days tend to think more that Mark probably was the first Gospel to be written. But there's no certainty about any of these things. But Chapman remained faithful to the Griesbach theory. And uh, he passed it on to uh, another monk who was at Ealing called Bernard Orchard, who was a great scholar, great scholar at Ealing Abbey. Uh, he died in his 90s. Just Benedictine monks often seem to live a long life. And um, he followed on from Chapman and carried on some of his scholarly work on the Gospels. But I think it's a bit dated now. But also during his life, Chapman was very well known as a retreat giver, a spiritual director, an authority on prayer, though he would claim he wasn't an authority on prayer and the spiritual life. And that's really what he's best known for today from the book called The Spiritual Letters, which was put together after his death by a fellow monk called Roger Huddleston. I think he probably isn't related to the well-known Trevor Huddleston because the name is spelt differently. But after Chapman had died, he suffered quite a lot of ill health during his life and wasn't that old. He died in 1933. Um, Huddleston got together letters um, which Chapman had written. He got them from the people who had written to him asking for advice on prayer and put them together in this volume of spiritual letters to lay people and to members of religious orders. And this is the book that's become well known and which many people still read today. And it has a very useful memoir by Huddleston of Chapman's life, which is really the main source for information about his life. And there's one thing in particular I was interested in, which he says in his memoir, that he was working on a biography of Chapman and also on another volume of his spiritual writings, including the material that he used for giving retreats. And I was rather intrigued by that when I heard, saw it, because Chapman would only ever give a retreat once to the same group of people. He would not go back and give a retreat again to another group, the same group of nuns or monks. 
And the reason was that he always wanted to give essentially the same retreat. And having done lots of retreats myself now, I've reached that point too. <laughs> I only ever want to give the, the same retreat. It's on meditation, of course, as you might guess. Um, so I wouldn't you know, be able to do it lots of times for over for the same group of people. Um, so I was interested to see what this material was and made a visit to Downside Abbey uh, some years ago to see what they had in their archives. But none of this material was there and the current abbot, or the abbot at that time, said to me that Roger Huddleston, who compiled this book and edited the letters and wrote the memoir, he had gone off to Africa and taken all his Chapman papers with him. And somehow they disappeared in the course of time. So maybe they're mouldering away in a cupboard in parish office in Tanzania. <laughs> Who knows? But they've never come to light. I don't suppose they ever will now. So for the most part, so far as uh, Chapman's spiritual uh, writings are concerned, it's the book of letters, which is the only thing that we have. There is a recent reprint of it, um, uh, printed a few years ago, which has quite a nice little uh, preface by a man called Sebastian Moore, who was a monk at Downside whom I met when I was there. He subsequently died. He was another very elderly monk who died in his 90s. And in his days, an extraordinarily radical theologian. I once got hold of a, a copy of one of his books written in the 1960s. So I can't remember the exact title, but it was something like God is Another Language, something like that. And it's amazingly radical stuff, which you would not get uh, people writing today, I don't think. Um, but he was a great character, also a, a poet and uh, a very, very powerful presence in that monastery. And I was very pleased when he said that he knew John Mayne and greatly liked his work. But sadly, he's, he's moved on now, gone to God, if you like. So none of that material was there in their archives. I did search through it, and I came across um, a little pamphlet which had been printed, and I've got some copies of that to give you later, his uh, rules for contemplative prayer. And I also came across quite an intriguing little handwritten paper on the current state of Downside Abbey. He was, as he was prior before he became abbot, and he was noticing that a lot of the monks were taken up with their duties in the school which Downside ran, and were having to you know, spend a lot of time writing reports and going to parents' meetings and so on. And he says, is this really what monks are for? <laughs> and it's true, you know, it's a big question, as monastic life in general, religious life, is not exactly flourishing these days. There are very few vocations coming along. What is it really about? And something that 
that has occurred recently is a, quite a, a, a renewal of what are called contemplative religious orders. People will be attracted to those and want to go along and join them. But, you know, the, the regular Benedictines or Sisters of Mercy, you know, they, they're not getting vocations these days. But there is another side to that, because the, the newly popular contemplative, so-called contemplative communities, often make a great point of preferring the old liturgy, the old Latin mass, and dressing up in all the gear that they used to have. So the ladies, you'd have to wear all that elaborate stuff, which most of them, I think, find quite hard these days. So the renewal of contemplation, so-called, is not always uh, what it says it is, I don't think. But anyway, uh, but this is the question that Chapman raises. You know, what is this monastic life for? What is it about? And so far as I can see, and this is also what Vatican II um, says, the great value of the monastic life, the religious life, is that it has preserved the contemplative traditions of our faith, and this is what it can offer to people in general today. And this is where its renewal will come. You know, not from closing in on yourself, um, taking everything back to pre-Vatican II days, um, that's a bit of a caricature, but, um, but renewing oneself in order to offer what we have to the church as a whole, because that's the great vision of Vatican II, that the church needs to be renewed in its contemplative heart, and this is where the religious orders have a very special part to play. But. There's another side to that too, because as Thomas Keating and co. discovered, um, they need to read, reconnect with their contemplative roots as well. It's going a bit out of the way, but there's a, a very lovely story, which you might have come across, about the monks of uh, Thomas Keating's monastery in Massachusetts in the 1960s and 70s, they were along a, a road which didn't uh, carry on much further, but just down the road, uh, where it ended, there was another religious house which had become a center for teaching insight meditation in the Buddhist way. And the monks of uh, Spencer Abbey, St. Joseph's, they were Cistercians, which is a kind of offshoot of the Benedictine way, they found that they got a great stream of visitors coming along asking, is this where you teach insight meditation? And they said, no, no, it's not here. It's, it's further down the road. Just carry on and you'll come to it. And then they noticed that these visitors were mostly young white Americans. And they, they thought, you know, what are they looking for? What are they after? And so eventually they started asking them, you know, what are you looking for in this insight meditation? And in the jargon of the 1960s, the answer was, we're looking for a path. A path to illumination or enlightenment or something. 
And then they, meant, they took the further step and thought of asking them, did you ever think of looking for that path in your own Christian background? Because these people were clearly brought up in the Christian tradition. And their reply to that was, you mean Christianity has a path? <laughs> Uh, well, there you know, there it is. It's it's something that we have lost the contemplative way, the contemplative dimension. It's never been totally lost. It's always been there in the life of the Christian churches, and it has remarkable periods of flowering from time to time. Um, we know with these recent people going back, the Spanish Carmelites, Teresa of Avila and um, John of the Cross in the 16th century, further back in England in the 14th century, the great period of our mystical writing, the Cloud of Unknowing, Julian of Norwich, Richard Rawl, the Fire of Love, you know, it's always been there and it re-emerges from time to time, but then it tends to go underground again and it has to be rediscovered. But because it is so central, because we have a necessity of contemplation, it is something which keeps coming back. And eventually, people will latch on to the fact that this really is what we need to be about as the church today. And this is something that Chapman clearly experienced for himself, but clearly also the people who wrote to him they were, in their different ways, people who had come to see the importance of contemplation and wanted help with taking it further forward. And Chapman was the one they turned to because of his reputation. And he clearly was on the same lines and was able to help them out of his own experience. I'd just like to go on and give you uh, a continuation of the letter we started with to this same person. Um, Helen here has mentioned something which is interesting. that We don't have the, the letters of the people who were writing to Chapman. Um, the editor you know, wanted to respect their privacy. And uh, it would be interesting sometimes to know what he is responding to you can work out some of it, and he sometimes quotes from the letters they wrote to him. But uh, for the most part, we're, we're, we don't have uh, too much information about his correspondence. The, the one that uh, I'm choosing at the moment, uh, at some point the writer is speaking about the two of us together, husband and wife, joining religious life. But whether it's the husband or the wife who's writing is, is something we don't know. But as you might expect, Chapman doesn't think that's very possible to have a, a married couple in religious life. Maybe, maybe you could in some sort of way. It would be very difficult, I think. Anyway, moving on, the, the, the letter I quoted from was January 1925. This is the next one from April 1927, the next one in this sequence. I recommend you pray, he says, because it's good for everybody, and our Lord tells us to pray. 
As to method, do what you can do and what suits you. It seems obvious that most spiritual reading and meditation fails to help you. And the simplest kind of prayer is the best. So use that. Of course, he doesn't say what the simplest way of prayer is. And I think most of us would probably like to know what it is. And certainly for myself, having discovered the work of John Lane, and one thing that I do value in it, is the fact that he does give you a simple way which you can take and practice for yourself. And I think that's, you know, that is what we need. Um, you don't come to this out of your own resources, I think. You, at some point you need to be taught that this is a way of prayer that you could follow. You might make it up for yourself somehow or other. But for the most part, I think we all come to it because we are taught it by somebody else in the first instance. So to, to have a simple way which you can teach to people and which they can take and practice for themselves, I think that is a, a big need of the church today. Because for the most part, we don't spend a lot of time giving people instruction in prayer in the regular life of the church. You know, we have rituals we expect them to take part in, and doctrines we expect them to sign up to, and moral codes we expect them to live by, but we don't teach how to pray, and I think it is something that does need to be taught. In this diocese, uh, a while ago, we had a great program of what was called pastoral and spiritual renewal at your word, Lord. And I'm sure it did a lot of good. But I heard somebody say that if I was really interested, somebody knowledgeable in such matters, if I was really interested in renewing the life of this diocese and its parishes and people, what I would do is close everything down for six months and use the time to teach people how to pray. So, <laughs> of course we couldn't possibly do that, but maybe we should have, I don't know. But this is one of the slight frustrations I have in Chapman's writing, that although he talks a lot about it, he never says what you should do. He just says the simplest kind of prayer is the best. He goes on, but prayer in the sense of union with God, this is a rather unusual thing to say, is the most crucifying thing there is. One must do it for God's sake, but one will not get any satisfaction out of it in the sense of feeling, I am good at prayer. I have an infallible method. That would be disastrous since what we want to learn is precisely our own weakness, powerlessness, unworthiness. Is this something that you find yourselves in, in trying to meditate? It's the most crucifying thing that you could do? <laughs> One of the things that really bugs me about the current English version of the Mass that we have is it keeps talking about rewards. God's rewards. If we, if we work hard and keep our nose clean, we will receive the reward. Get that over and over again. 
And it's quite wrong to think in that term, in those terms, isn't it? But I suppose, you know, we're all brought up from early childhood, you know, to think we've got to behave well and keep on the right side of our parents and teachers and strive to, to do well. And it's true, you know, we do have things that we need to work at and do well. But it's, if we apply that to our spiritual life, then it's, it's just wrong. You know, we don't have to strive to be loved by God. We just have to be. But that's what we find hard, isn't it? Because we're full of our own ideas about ourselves, and distractions, and all those ideas going on in us all the time. To lay all that side aside and just say, I can just be here with God and that's enough. And more than enough, it's everything. Uh, it's hard to think like that because we apply the same measures of success and failure and reaching for rewards to our spiritual life as we do life in general. I'm sure you'll know the, the music of Margaret Ritzer, which we often have in these meditation sessions. And when she produced her first CD of music for contemplative worship, a lot of people were attracted by it. And um, she was doing a session on music and prayer, which I went to too, because previously I'd known her as a singer, professional singer, and have another CD in which she is the second witch in Dido and Aeneas. <laughs> and I was intrigued to know what had brought her on to this new field of, of music and prayer. And in the course of the day, she said something like, uh, that as a professional singer, she was getting very down with the competitiveness of it all. And she meant not so much competing against other people, but competing with herself. You know, having to work at things and improve her performance and keep up the standards. And you know, in that field, you, you have to do that if you want to do it. You, you need to do it well. and. You have to work at it in that sort of way. But then she realized that in relation to God, that none of this applied. She didn't have to work at it. She didn't have to strive for high standards. She just had to be herself. But that's something that we find difficult, crucifying maybe. Also, I just meant to ask you also, um, the, the previous letter, when he says, your usefulness is a good feeling, he cannot be, we cannot be useful to God. He can do without us perfectly well. I was wondering how you reacted to that. Because I guess we all like to think we're doing good work in the service of the Lord. But he can manage without us. I suppose it's true. God could do anything without anyone at all. But uh, Having said it would be disastrous to think I'm good at prayer, he continues, nor ought one to expect a sense of the reality of the supernatural of which you speak. The person who's writing to him had obviously mentioned that. He would like to have a sense of the reality of the supernatural, but you shouldn't expect that. And one should wish for no prayer except precisely the prayer that God gives us probably very distracted and unsatisfactory in every way. And that's another of his big themes, that you should go with whatever is the case. 
in the moment when you're doing it. So if your prayer is full of distractions and feels a complete waste of time, that's okay, just stay with it, because that's the prayer God is giving you at this moment. On the other hand, the only way to pray is to pray. And the way to pray well is to pray much. If one has no time for this, then one must at least pray regularly. But the less one prays, the worse it goes. And if circumstances don't permit even regularity, then one, then one must put up with the fact that when one does try to pray, one can't pray. And our prayer will probably consist of telling this to God. <laughs> it's so real, isn't it? Yeah. As to beginning afresh, or where you left off, I don't think you have any choice. You simply have to begin wherever you find yourself. Make any acts you want to make and feel you ought to make. But don't force yourself into feelings of any kind. He often uses this term, acts, and he means you know, the standard formula, acts of confession, thanksgiving, supplication, you know, word, uh, vocal prayer, that we, in which we are making an act of something or other to God. Uh, but he says, you, know, you can do these, fine, but don't force yourself into feelings of any kind. Uh, that's an, another uh, regular point which we'll, we'll come back to. You say very naturally that you don't know what to do if you have a quarter of an hour alone in church. Yes, I suspect the only thing to do is to shut out the church and everything else and just give yourself to God and beg him to have mercy on you and offer him all your distractions. Then he quotes again from the person's letter, as to religious matters being confused and overwhelming, I dare say they may remain so, in a sense, but if you get the right simple relation to God by prayer, you've got him to the center of the wheel, where the revolving doesn't matter. Lawrence Freeman often uses that image, doesn't he, of the, the wheel of prayer, the, the, the hub, which is the still center, and the spokes, the other forms of prayer around it. So you have meditation at the heart, the still center, and then as the wheel goes round, you can engage in all the other forms of prayer that you want to. We're never saying that meditation replaces other forms of prayer, or even that it's more important than other forms of prayer, but that it, it has a certain um, necessity, <laughs> to use my word about it. We can't get worried of the worries of this world or of the questionings of the intellect, but we can laugh at them and despise them so far as they are worries. Being in touch with God's will is the, the only thing that really matters. The next letter to this person was written not from the Abbey, but from the Worcestershire Brian Baths Hotel, Droitwich. He'd obviously gone for a spa treatment. <laughs> and he says here, I don't wonder that you can't pray. What you mean is that you can't think when you pray. Have the right intention, and then it is prayer. 
but you needn't understand what you mean or think about it. Distractions do not interfere with prayer when they are involuntary. If we prayed simply because we wanted the consolations of religion, this state of things would be very disappointing. <laughs> but if we only pray in order to give ourselves to God, then the prayer that we can do, whatever it is, doubtless it's not the very best we can do, but in general it's the only kind we can do, this is what God wants, though it's far from being what we want. Only we must try to want what God wants, and only that. Don't worry. And then one would like so much to report progress, to feel that one is doing something. Only one can't. One wouldn't. If you could do it, you should do it. Only to try it when one can't succeed only makes things much worse. The other way is what St. Francis de Sales and St. Ignatius call indifference and others call abandon, the French, the use of the French term. And this is doing something and something very hard. Only it's usually humbling rather than consoling. And one of the writers he was very keen on was the French 18th century writer, I think, Jean-Pierre de Caussade, who has <laughs> the book Abandonment to Divine Providence, Abandon. We'll, we'll come back to that later. But this is what is meant by uh, the same term that St. Ignatius talks about, indifference, which doesn't mean not caring about things, but being able to let go of your care about things so that you're in a state of openness to God and his will in the present moment. It's the same idea, I think, that Kossad uh, speaks about in abandoning yourself to divine providence. Of course, quiet is necessary for peace. But if God doesn't wish us to have peace, we must be satisfied with confusion. And that is peace of an elusive kind. And he has a Latin phrase here now. Everything works for good for those who love God. Every circumstance of our life is a means of getting to heaven and a part of God's providence so that at every moment we are in touch with God. So we don't need to see him as we feel his hand in every outward thing and in every inward non-willful feeling and even in our will as well, when it is good. Only this is a truth to be acted upon rather than meditated upon. In some of these letters, he gets uh, rather psychological and theological, and it's sometimes quite tricky to follow because it's very much of its time, you know, this 1920s, it's the way of thinking appropriate to that time, which he's still following. Um, and that's unfortunately one of the things you'll find in the famous Nicomus letter. But it's worth persevering with because uh, sooner or later you'll get back onto the more simple track of things. Um, another letter that I wanted to quote you is one in which he touches on the question of prayer as being Christian or not Christian. It's sometimes the way the fact that um, people 
will think meditation is not a truly Christian way of prayer. And indeed, John Lane himself, in his account, says that this is what he experienced when he became a monk at Ealing around about 1960, because he discovered meditation, as you know, from the Far East and become very important to him. And he thought that as a monk, he'd have all this wonderful time available for meditation. Ha ha. But he was dissuaded from carrying on this way of prayer at the time because it was thought not to be truly Christian. And instead, one should meditate on the mysteries of the faith. And being obedient, because monks are supposed to be obedient, he went along with that, but he says it led him into a kind of desert, a wilderness, and it was all adrift. But, and this is also rather significant, he says he became so busy as a monk and teacher that it didn't matter. He was so taken up with other things. But obviously things must have changed because later on, Nain set up his first meditation community at Ealing, so the feeling about it must have, must have changed by then. But anyway, it's a question that people do sometimes raise, is this meditation or centering prayer really Christian? Well, things were ever thus. When, when, when this book of letters appeared, Chapman was condemned for the many errors in his doctrine and was accused of being a Buddhist. Well, anyway, this is what Chapman says. I quite agree with the criticism that my little paper on prayer is not Christian. <laughs> That's the paper I'm going to give you later. Prayer is not particularly Christian in itself. It is Christian to pray to Christ or Our Lady or to end our prayers, per Jesum Christum Dominum Nostrum. The latter is assumed. But the Our Father is not Christian in inverted commas, except in the sense that it is the Lord's Prayer. It is natural religion in its highest form. I once suggested this to some people. I said, most people would say, the Our Father is the quintessential Christian prayer. We say, you know, it is the prayer of the Christian family. But if you look at it and the words in it, there isn't anything in it which is specifically Christian, except the fact that it comes from Christ himself. You know, it doesn't touch on Christian doctrines or the incarnation or anything. And I suppose I can see there's nothing in it which couldn't equally well be prayed by Jewish people, you say? Or, yes, well, of course, yes. Or, or Muslims. So, as he says, the Our Father is natural religion in its highest form. I used to dislike St. John of the Cross because I said he wasn't Christian. I called him Buddhist. Sufi would have been as good. For you find mystics in all monotheistic religions. But contemplative prayer makes people good Catholics. <laughs> good Christians as well, we hope. Somebody the other day pointed out to me that once he had been converted and left the Church of England, he started to have a rather derogatory 
approach to Anglicanism. It's very much of the time, you know, it's the time he was at. I don't think it's quite the case, but sometimes you do get these things which uh, uh, stress the superiority of the Catholic way. Uh, we're not going to have time now before lunch to look at the, the Michaelmas letter, but we will after lunch. But I'd just like to, to give you one more from a little set of letters to a lady living in the world. <laughs> a lay person. This is rather nice, I think. It's common enough for those who have any touch of mysticism, which I regard as having a natural base, though it is a grace, if faithfully used, to be absolutely unable to find any meaning in vocal prayers. Well, I think he's responding to what this person was saying, that, that, that she was finding it hard to pray in the previous way that she had, using lots and lots of words and favorite forms of words. I think if people do get into a practice of contemplative prayer, they find, in fact, that that enriches all their other forms of prayer, and the sacraments, the Eucharist, and so on. They, they appreciate them in a deeper sort of way, but maybe they don't need as much of it as they used to. I don't know. Anyway, he goes on. If you simply read your vocal prayers or recite them without praying, you can understand them as well as any other book. But if you turn to God, all thinking and understanding stops. I suppose this is because something else is going on. The rule is simply, here it is, pray as you can and do not try to pray as you can't. That's the famous quotation. Take yourself as you find yourself and start from that. Again, someday you may find the acts or continued act of love stops. It's gone, you can't find it. God is hidden. Then you take that as his will and do the best you can in darkness and humility. But don't worry yourself about vocal prayers. That's, keep saying that, you know, don't worry. We do, but we don't need to. It's good to say some, but simply to stay with God is best. As to stability, this lady living in the world, they obviously asked something about that. I quite agree with your answer from St. Benedict, whether it came from him straight or not. Stability to the rule means, I suppose, stability in religious life according to St. Benedict's rule. This includes stability of place, since the rule insists that the monk is to remain in the monastery. We had an ordination at Ealing a while ago by Archbishop Nichols, and in his address he said he'd met many well-traveled Benedictine monks. <laughs> and they're supposed to take a vow of stability, which should mean staying in the same place. But they interpret that to mean staying in, staying faithful, stable in the way of life. I once said to one of the monks, who I thought was treating me in a rather offhand sort of way, the rule of St. Benedict says you should treat all visitors as if it was Christ himself. And he said, yes, well, 
we don't so much live by the rule as interpret it. <laughs> and it certainly has to be interpreted. But stability is one of the three Benedictine vows and obedience. That doesn't mean doing what you're told by somebody who has power over you. It means mutual listening to the Holy Spirit, in my interpretation. <laughs> but the other vow they take is what's called convers conversatio morum, a conversion of life. It doesn't mean a single moment of conversion, but a process. We're, we are setting ourselves to engage in this process in which gradually we'll grow in our faith and in our knowledge of God. Uh, but we need to be stable in order to do this, and staying in the same place is obviously helpful to that. Then he ends this letter, but I do not advise you to ask for revelations, even of the most harmless nature. <laughs> People sometimes do think, you know, religious life is all about having messages and revelations. And no doubt there are such things, but don't go out of your way to get them. Just be simple and be with God. That's what he would advise. Well, it's nearly one o'clock, so we'll, we'll stop there, and then we'll have a look uh, in more detail at the longer letter that I started with, the, uh, the one from Nicholas that John Main refers to, and then also I'll give you the little pamphlet that he wrote on contemplative prayer, which was taken from one of the other letters, which he was asked for, and he said um, he, he, he made it possible for this to be printed because so many people were asking for it. Um, so we'll, we'll look at those after, after lunch. Okay, thank you. All right, can we come together again for our afternoon session? I was going to give you a copy of the letter that John Lane mentions, the famous letter of Michaelmas 1920, but um, I think we'll, I'll give you it later and you can take it and read it for yourself. But instead of looking at that now, we'll have a look together at this other pamphlet that he wrote on contemplative prayer, if we can uh, like to give copies. It's um, rather small print in order to get it onto a folded sheet. There's a series of letters to a canoness regular of the Lateran, a woman who follows the Augustinian way in religious life. And uh, in, these, in this series, there's one very long letter in which he goes into a lot of detail about contemplative prayer. And he wrote this up as a small pamphlet. Someone suggested it would be a good idea to make this more widely available. So it was printed separately as a small pamphlet. And that's what you've got uh, on this handout. So I thought we'd just have a look through this together. And do, you know, do chip in in the way you've been doing, um, because that's good. It's not just me spouting all the time, but uh, your experiences, it's good to hear about as well. When this little pamphlet appeared, it was immediately attacked, of course, by people who thought he was going astray and drifting off into Buddhism or Sufism 
or something else. And as I said, that happened when the letters themselves were published. There were several attacks in the Catholic press on him, but he was safely dead by that time, so <laughs> didn't didn't impinge on him. But others have defended him since. One of the things that comes across in this letter is that when it comes to what we call contemplative prayer, we are all always beginners. We're all just starting on this journey. Nobody can claim that they are well advanced and know all that it's about, all that is to be known about it. We're all starting again from the beginning. And I think that's something that John Nain would say too, that when we, each time we sit down to meditate, we're starting afresh. It's a new experience of God. And we're only scratching the surface of it. But he's also very keen on the idea that people will come in their regular prayer life, if they have one at all, to a point where they need to move on from other things into contemplative prayer. And that's something that I've come to think more and more, um, partly not what we were saying at the beginning, the way things have changed in our whole religion over the centuries, and that we have had uh, recently a rediscovery of the contemplative way, and many people are practicing it, and people are thinking it's becoming more and more important and I tend to think that this is indeed the case, that uh, you know, people will not be drawn to practicing religion anymore out of habit or social custom or tradition. Um, it'll be a personal decision. It'll be a personal choice that they make, that they want to be part of a religious setup and then a church associated with it, maybe. And so the personal discovery of God and God in oneself is what is going to lead people back to religion. And this is what several of the popes have been saying since Vatican II, and these teachers that we've had who've come along, including for us especially John Ney. Um, but I also take heart from the fact that this need clearly is one that's very long-standing, and the people that Chapman was writing to in the first years of the 20th century, they clearly were people who were experiencing this need. You know, they'd been through conventional religious life and reached a point where it didn't satisfy them anymore. They want to move on and uh, they're getting into the more contemplative way of things. But they need help and guidance to do so. So let's just have a look at this little, uh, this little text together contemplative prayer, a few simple rules. The signs which indicate that meditation is to be given up, and there's a footnote there, I don't know if you can, it must be even in smaller text. Under the head of meditation, I include not only strict and formal meditation, according to the method of St. Ignatius, or any other regular method, but all thinking out of some particular subject, representation of mysteries to the imagination, pious considerations, etc. In other words, all the, what you might call, discursive operations 
of the mind in thinking about a religious theme or subject. And the move from that into contemplation is something which many people have noticed. And those who look at the practice of Lectio Divina, you know, the ancient way of praying with scripture, they often identify the stages that it can go through. And will say, if you're wanting to meditate on scripture, so you take a passage and read it, and then you think about it, and then you see what that suggests to you, and you go on with that as long as you can, as long as you have time for. But then they say the whole process can kind of wind down. And after thinking as much as you can, you reach a point where you let go of all your thoughts and just rest in maybe one phrase or idea from the passage you're looking at and just be there with it. And the name they give to this final stage is contemplatio, contemplation. So there is a, an almost natural progression that one makes from using the mind to apply oneself to God and the ways of God and thinking about him and then gradually moving from that, slowly perhaps, to a point where you just want to let go of all the thinking of the mind and just rest in the presence of God in what we call contemplation. But I guess there are many people in the churches who don't reach that point and there's nothing wrong with that. We're all at a different stage. Um, some people are a bit further along than others maybe, but nobody you know, is better off really than anyone else. So the signs which indicate that meditation is to be given up and a different kind of prayer substituted are described by St. John of the Cross in three places. First, in the book called The Ascent of Mount Carmel, where he identifies the sheer impossibility of meditating. You know, as I used to find, you, you read a passage and you think, oh, well, what do I do? You know, what can I think about in relation to this? And somehow it just won't come. And uh, you don't know what to do. You think it's something you should be doing, but you just can't do it. Or you take no pleasure in using the imagination. Or you take a delight in being alone and waiting lovingly upon God. I think it does happen, you know, that you, you can follow the promptings of your imagination to quite a long extent, but then somehow it just becomes pointless. You don't take any pleasure in it anymore. And then in this other work called The Obscure Night, there are other signs that John of the Cross picks out. Dryness, without comfort, either in God or in creatures. Uh, when he uses the term creatures, he means everything in the created world. You know, not animals, but the world. Painful anxiety as to further inability to meditate. People often experience a sense of dryness in their prayer. It seems to be all uneventful and dry and nothing much is happening. Do you find that? And you can get worried about it. You know, you think, well, here am I doing this prayer. It should be good. It should be helping me to know God, but I'm getting nothing out of it. I just feel a sense of emptiness. 
and as if I'm in a desert and nothing's going on. And lastly, more shortly, he says, but with more explicit directions as to conduct in this state in the long digression in the other book, The Living Flame of Love, which I think more or less repeats the same sort of things that he's already been talking about. But many persons pass long years in this dark night when they cannot meditate and yet are afraid to contemplate. Now that's quite an interesting expression to use. Why should one be afraid to contemplate? But I think there is uh, a sense in which sometimes we're very reluctant to let go of what we know and are familiar with and launch out into something unknown, especially when there is virtually no content to it. You know, if somebody were to say to you, and you had no experience of this before and no knowledge of it, I think you should contemplate using a single repeated word. If you haven't done it before and you haven't reached the point where you want to get on to something like this, it can be quite intimidating because all the, the anchors are gone, all your uh, regular uh, points that you rely on. You know, they're not there anymore. The, uh, the things that you, uh, you take for granted, they've stopped working, but you don't know what you might be getting yourself into. So the idea of just letting go of everything and being quiet and still and not having too much to do can be intimidating. And sometimes people are reluctant to do that because they think if they let go of their usual anchors, something nasty might get at them. I've heard that before now. The devil will get in if you've got nothing to, to do. Have you heard that one before? Yes. Sometimes it seems for religious people the devil is more real than God. But in general, you know, if you're encouraged to let go of everything and just trust yourself to the silence, it can be, you know, quite a challenge. So people um, who are at that point, they can't meditate, they're afraid to contemplate. The signs may be less easy to recognize. They've tried methods one after another. They've tried reading and pondering and then reading again a good way of keeping off distractions. Alas, perhaps they've almost given up mental prayer in despair. They find it hard to believe that they are in the mystical, obscure night. They don't feel urged by a frequent thought of God, nor do they dare to say that they have a disgust of creatures, the world, that is. On the contrary, they have found the spiritual life so dry that they have felt thrown upon creatures for consolation. They have often taken refuge in distractions which are not sinful because recollectedness seems impossible. They have imagined themselves to be going back because they have no devotion, no feelings, and perhaps they are really going back since they've not learned the right path forward but they have the essential marks of the obscure night, for they cannot meditate. It is a physical impossibility. 
I think this term obscure night is what John of the Cross also calls the night of the senses. It's not the dark night of the soul, that comes later, but it's the night of the senses when everything that you're aware of through the use of your senses seems to be without purpose or point or meaning. It's all just dry. Yes, yes. It isn't depression in the clinical sense, but it can feel like it, yes, yeah. Yes, that, well, that's a very good question, yes. Yeah. I suppose it's a question of what your intentions are. You know, if you're truly, genuinely wanting to be in touch with God, that's your intention, then if these other things happen, it's not necessarily, you know, because something is going wrong, that you are clinically depressed, but that you're being invited to let go of things that you've had to rely on before because they're not working anymore. You're moving on. Every crisis is also an, an invitation to move on into something else, something deeper. He's saying all this, of course, because he's, he's come across people who have gone through this and have written to him about it. You know, it all comes out of his own attempt to direct people and help them forward. So meditation, remember that means thinking about something, becomes physically impossible. And when people attempt it, either they can't even fix their thoughts on the subject at all, or else they fall into distractions at once, in spite of themselves. Nor do they wish to meditate. They are as able to think out a subject, to work out a sermon, as anyone else's but they feel that such considerations are not prayer. They want to unite themselves with God, not to reason about what he has done for them or what they have to do for him. This they can do at any time and all day long. They can examine themselves and make good resolutions. They can think of the mysteries of Christ's life and death, of the words of Holy Scripture, of heaven and hell, but when they come to prayer, all this vanishes. They feel that if they think, they put themselves out of prayer. They don't want thoughts about God, but God. You see the distinction there. You can spend a lot of time thinking about God and working out who he is and what we should believe about him. But wanting God himself is something different. The great example of this maybe is St. Thomas Aquinas, who spent a whole lifetime writing theology, a whole library of books on it probably. And at the end, what did he say at the end of it all? Yes, it's all just straw, in comparison with the sheer joy of knowing the Lord. But I suppose you've got to work through the first stage before you can get on to that point. Well, you know, I can look back in hindsight and remember that after I was ordained for many years, you know, I was doing all the things one should do as a priest and leading services and preaching sermons and singing hymns and leading prayers and so on. 
But it wasn't until later, when I first of all got onto the Ignatian way, that I realized I hadn't a clue what any of it was about. <laughs> Looking back, it was all on the surface, it was all external. Uh, it wasn't, there was nothing particularly wrong with it, but I just wasn't there somehow. And I came to realize that. And then that's when I started to want to move on further for myself. And it wasn't, it wasn't depressing in any way. Um, it was just, you know, this is, I realized this was what I needed to do. Actually, it was becoming a hospital chaplain that was a big turning point for me, because there I was, you know, trying to minister to these people in dire need, you know, really terrible situations people were facing in hospital, um, accidents and infections and so on. And there I was, supposedly representing God and helping these people to know God in, in a way that would give them something in their illness. And I knew that unless I knew God for myself, I couldn't do anything for them. I could just go through the motions, but you know, I wasn't doing the real business. So that's when I came to see you know, I need to get into this more for myself, really, if I'm to be of any use to others. So when you've got to that point, the rules to be observed by those who find themselves in this state, and it is the ordinary state of most of those who belong to a contemplative order. That also is an interesting point. You know, he's obviously noticed that his fellow monks are all in this same situation of not being able to meditate and needing to move on to kind of contemplate. The rules are very simple. John of the Cross has explained them, but a few notes founded on his teaching and also on the experience of a number of people will possibly be useful. I think that's uh, an important point he's making there. This is not just out of abstract teaching, but it's come out of actual experience that people have. I like this one. The time of prayer is passed in the act of wanting God. It is an idiotic state and feels like the completest waste of time until it gradually becomes more vivid. The strangest phenomenon is when we begin to wonder whether we mean anything at all and if we are addressing anyone or merely repeating mechanically a formula we do not mean. The word God seems to mean nothing. If we feel this cautious, this curious and paradoxical condition, we are starting on the right road. And we must beware of trying to think what God is and what he has done for us or what we are before him. Because this takes us out of prayer and spoils God's work. Probably this is what St. Anthony means when he said that no one is praying really if he knows what he is and what God is. And the variant of that is the saying, which you might have come across, that somebody who knows that he is praying has stopped praying <laughs> because he's thinking about it. He's thinking, ah, now I'm praying. If you reach that point, you're not praying, you've stopped it. You've gone into something else. You've gone into the thinking mind. You've gone back to the thinking mind. Well, um, section nine here, distractions. 
everybody wonders about distractions because we all have them. He says there are two kinds. The ordinary distractions, such as one has in meditation, which take one right away. So you're sitting down, reading a piece of scripture, and you suddenly start thinking, did I put the cat out last night, or did I switch the gas off before uh, starting on this, or did I switch the lights off my car, or what am I going to be doing tomorrow, or next week, or in 10 years' time? Everybody has those. They take you right away, straight away. But then he says there are the harmless wanderings of the imagination alone, while the intellect is to all appearances idle and empty, and the will is fixed on God. These are quite harmless. I'm not entirely sure when he gets onto this sort of talk about the difference between will and intellect. He says a lot about it in some of these letters, and I think he's using words in a slightly different way than we would. Um, the will is, I think, is the center of the human person. It's the, the heart, if you like. So you could say, at the center of myself, I am fixed on God, and I want God, and I'm quite sure about that. But my discursive mind may be going off in my imagination in all sorts of other directions, towards all sorts of other things. I think that's what it is. And these distractions, he says, fortunately, are quite harmless. And also, encouragingly, when these latter distractions remain all the time, the prayer is just as good, often much better. The will remains united, yet we feel utterly dissatisfied and humble but we come away wanting nothing but God. There was a time when some moral theologians were talking about your fundamental orientation. And they said that you can, at the center of yourself, desire to do what is right and good, but in practice, you will often be led astray. And so long as you have the fundamental orientation towards God and goodness, that's okay, you're okay. Uh, you'll still make mistakes and do things wrong, but you're fundamentally all right. But I think this idea was frowned on officially. <laughs> Actions are either, either right and good in themselves, or they're wrong and bad. And there's nothing that can change that, whatever your fundamental orientation may be. If it's a wrong action, it's a wrong action, and you're responsible for it. Yes, motivation surely must have a large part to play in all of this, whether you're really wanting to do good, but get led astray, or just make mistakes and get things wrong. Can you be blamed for that? Well, some would say you can, but uh, I think I'd go along more with the idea that the center of yourself you can be oriented to God, but in practice, time to time, you'll make mistakes. Yes, I sometimes think that we don't actually need a God to judge us, because we're quite good at judging ourselves, or, or if we don't, other people will do it for us. 
Oh dear. Okay, um, section 12. This is a, a, an important one. This is a key point that Chapman makes many times. The real value of prayer can be securely estimated by its effect on the rest of the day. So if prayer is working and it's doing what it should be doing, you might not be aware of it in the prayer time. The prayer time might feel empty and dry and so on, but it will be having an effect on you and your life, and that's where it really matters. So even if your prayer seems very unsatisfactory, if it's having a beneficial effect on your life and who you are, that's the really important thing. As Jermaine said, I think if you're meditating and through this you're, you're coming closer to God, you may not be aware of it, what does that mean? It should mean that you become more loving and that will show itself in your life. And other people maybe will notice it more than you do yourself. But that's where it really counts in how you live your life. It's not just you know, being nicely here with God, but is it really working in me as a person? He also said, didn't he, that if you've been meditating for 30 years and find you haven't become more loving, maybe it's time to try something else. <laughs> so the, the sort of effects you can expect are a desire for the will of God exactly corresponding to the irrational and unmeaning craving for God which went on in prayer. We just do the prayer, we do it as best we can, but we don't worry about how it's going. But if it is going in the way it should, it will produce that desire for the will of God, another of his key themes, which we will keep with us. And so B there, the cessation of multiple resolutions. We might have been used to making and remaking resolutions, never keeping them for very long, but now we only make one, to do and to suffer God's will. Hence, we have arrived at simplicity. All our spiritual life is unified into the one desire of union with God and his will. It is for this union that we were made, and we have found a lodestone which draws us. But don't expect to get there very quickly, I think he would also say. Union with God. Well, we're always in a state of union with God at the deepest level. We might have some inkling of it, some awareness of it, but the fullness of it is always somewhere in the future. We're always still just beginning. But that's what we're aiming for. That's the lodestone that is directing us and drawing us the desire to be in union with God and his will. So 13, as to progress in knowledge, with some people there is no knowledge of God or of his nearness, only a blind certainty that he knows our want. We cannot think of his being present, for thinking stops prayer. But others have a vague, undefinable knowledge that God is there. This should be preserved all day, as far as possible, by those who feel it. It grows more and more definite and remains, yet remains just as indefinite. 
that is to say the soul becomes more and more definitely conscious of being in the presence of something undefinable, yet above all things desirable, without any of the more arriving at being able to think about it or speak about it, more and more conscious of its own nothingness before God without knowing how, more and more convinced of the nothingness of creatures without reasoning on the subject. This is all so vague and indefinite, isn't it? You think, well, why would anyone want to get into all of this? But, you know, once you set your hand to the plough, you can only go forward. But fortunately, we do get flashes of the infinite, as he says. It's difficult to find an expression for this. When, for an instant, a conception passes like lightning of reality, eternity, etc. They leave an impression that the world is dust and ashes. The effect must be carefully preserved outside the time of prayer. Some people are more liable to these perceptions than others are. And then in uh, number four, subsection four of this progress in knowledge, in the developed prayer of quiet, what we would call contemplation, the soul does know that God is there may not be able to analyze it or define it exactly, but it's an unmistakable assurance that God is there. The pleasurable feelings of which St. Teresa speaks don't seem to be essential to the prayer of quiet, but when they are there, the soul may either be urged by them to more vehement desire or be satisfied and rather praise than pray. And section 14, he says, it's worth noting that praise is in itself more perfect than simply wanting God. I don't really understand this bit, I must admit. For the latter is rather hope than charity. Praise is the occupation of heaven when the desire is fully satisfied. Well, it's what we tend to, to think, that um, heaven is full of angels and creatures praising God all the time, which doesn't sound too exciting, really. Is that all we're going to be doing, praising God all the time? Well, that's what you mean by praise, of course. It's the state of being totally in, in touch with God when there is nothing to do except bow down before him and worship him. But I'm not quite sure why he says that this is more perfect than simply wanting God, because he's been at pains to say that this is what we should be looking for, the desire for union with God. All right, well, just go uh, move on, if you would, to section 15 here, outside the time of prayer. The first one may be surprising. Meditation must never be dropped. It need not be elaborate consideration, but a mere glance at the mysteries of our Lord, especially of the Passion. You know, we need to keep what our faith is and the various things that we believe in in relation to that before us in some way or other. Otherwise, we could be just drifting off into... Ah, meditation must never be dropped. I may have copied that out wrongly. It never be dropped is what it should be. 
so again, you know, it's not that contemplative prayer does away with the need for everything else. We still need our worship, our intercessions, our sacraments, our meditation in the sense of thinking about the mysteries of our faith. Most people will find it very easy and helpful to make the Stations of the Cross in private. Well, maybe, if that appeals to you. <laughs> yes, it's a regular Catholic devotion. I can't say I'm that drawn to it these days. Similarly, examination of conscience becomes automatic as long as contemplative prayer is kept up. Good resolutions make themselves. Examination of conscience means looking at your life to see what you're doing, right or wrong. And if you're more in touch with God, then, well, you'll be more aware of that. And you will have the good resolutions, one hopes. Uh, number C here, or letter C, outside the time of prayer, imperfections and even sins are such a help to that humility which is the condition of prayer that they seem almost a help rather than a hindrance. That's rather reassuring, isn't it? To feel utterly crushed and annihilated, incapable of any good, wholly dependent on God's undeserved and infinite mercy is the best and only preparation for prayer. It means an entire confidence, an exaltation, praise element again, in being nothing because God is all which brings the only peace, which is true peace. A little practice makes it possible to meditate a little without losing prayer. All the time, you know, when he speaks of just prayer on its own, he means contemplation, the consciousness of God. But this should not be indulged in during prayer time. Don't try to meditate as well as contemplate at the same time, as it's a half and half state which produces far less effect in the soul than pure prayer does, in which there is no thought. Every kind of self-indulgence or fully willful imperfection, that is, doing what God asks us not to do, or omitting what we know he wishes us to do, makes prayer impossible until it is disowned. For contemplative prayer implies a state of wanting God and wanting God's will, which is the same thing wholly and entirely. But it doesn't follow that the beginner is to be expected to show at all a high degree of perfection. It's also nice to hear. And remember, we're all beginners all the time. God doesn't show up the soul, doesn't show the soul all its faults, nor all it has eventually to give up. It gives up something, and in time he will ask more. Meanwhile, it has faults which are obvious enough to others, though probably not to itself. There's a nursing home in the parish which I go to regularly, and there's a little group that meets for communion. And there was an occasion once when I was reading that bit from St. Paul about how nothing at all can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And there was a Jewish man who sat in with us, and uh, I read this and said, you know, this is wonderful to hear that you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then he said, except sin. 
And of course, you know, it is the case that we can cut ourselves off from God. And I think that is what the state of sin is. It's a state of being separated from God. And in theory, it's possible for us, well, to get into a state where we think we are cut off from God. I think at the deepest level, we never really are. But we can believe that we are. It's our thoughts of where we are, isn't it? Yes. But it's reassuring to hear that you don't, you're not expected to be perfect or even reach a high degree of perfection in these matters. You'll have faults and you'll become aware of them, but uh, you carry on uh, wanting God. And then the final part of this little paper, a few hints about the prayer itself. You may not agree with this bit, Beginners want to be alone or in the dark. Practice makes this less necessary. But it's rare that a contemplative is independent of externals. And I don't know about you, but I certainly find that to be very true, that you know, you, if, even when you're praying in a contemplative way, you know, you're in touch with God at the heart of yourself, but what's going on around you could still impact on that. And in our meditation group on Tuesday evening, there's a very annoying ticking clock in the room, which I always take down and put away in the cupboard, because I left it up. It's an external thing, but it would irritate me no end during the meditation. I have to get rid of it. I find sometimes that I like to meditate on the underground because the journey is often quite a convenient length for the purpose. And it's interesting, you know, if you just close your eyes, it does immediately you know, remove you from the immediate environment. And you can be aware of people and movement, announcements of where you are, but you can still be there in your meditation. There's a neat illustration of this in this little book. Do you know this writer, Martin Laird? There's a new book of his out recently, but in this one, it's the second one he did. He talks about a retreat where, for about an hour in the afternoon, over three consecutive days, the neighbor next door to the retreat house would saw timber <laughs> with his electric table saw. And there was one person in the group who just couldn't get on with this. He's you know, Martin Laird said to them, there's nothing we can do about this, so you just have to let go of your feeling. And what he tends to say is, it's not so much the noise itself which is disturbing you, but the internal narrative that you make up about it. So you should be able to, to let go of that, and then the noise will not disturb you. But after a while, this person uh, was so irritated by it that he got up, went over to where the man was sawing, knocked the table over, pulled, pulled the plug out, and delivered a volley of the most dreadful abuse they'd ever heard. And when I read that, I couldn't help thinking, hmm, I think my reaction might be similar. 
So you're not going to be independent of externals. And you may find them more and more difficult to deal with. It depends what the noise is, I think, isn't it? Yes. What sort of noise it is. Some are easier to deal with than others. It is easier to be recollected when there is no noise, no distraction. It's the imagination which has to be kept quiet. He says somewhere that um, giving, you need to give the imagination something to satisfy it, like giving a dog a bone to chew on. Keep it quiet while you do your meditation. It's generally easiest to pray before the Blessed Sacrament. Well, some people would, would find that so. The night is a good time. The early morning is perhaps the best of all. I'm not too good on the early morning, but I think most people probably find the first meditation in the day, if it's in the morning, is easy enough to get in, but it's the second one later on that we struggle with. But you don't have to worry about that today because we're going to have one together. Now, this next sentence, number two of these hints, is one that I often quote, because I think this is one of the best short descriptions of contemplative prayer that there is. The simplest way of making an act of attention to God, though without thinking of him, is by an act of inattention to everything else. That sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? But you see the point. If, if you let go of your attentiveness to whatever's going on in your mind, everything else, then you cannot but be attentive to God. Because God is here and now, and if we are here and now, then we are with God. Um, so we need to let go of attentiveness in our mind to other things. Does that make sense? This is the same act that makes one makes when one tries to go to sleep. You know, when you're trying to sleep, you're trying to let go of your attentiveness to whatever's going on. And then section three and four, they, these are um, on much the same sort of theme. As distractions, when involuntary, do not spoil our prayer, and when merely of the imagination, scarcely even disturb it, we ought to be perfectly satisfied to have them. We are not to be resigned to them, but more to will them. For a contemplative is never to be resigned to God's will, but to will it. The result of this practice will be to decrease distractions by decreasing worry. If we only want God's will, there is no room for worry. So it's not saying to yourself, here am I trying to pray and I'm distracted all the time. I'll resign myself to the fact that I am distracted. I will actually will to be distracted in this way because this is where I am. This is the moment where God is. This is what God wants for me in this moment. One must accept joyfully and with the whole will exactly the state of prayer which God makes possible for us here and now. We will to have that and no other. It is just what God wills for us. We should like to be wrapped to the third heaven, but we will to be as we are, 
dry or distracted or consoled as God's will, as God wills. It's just the same out of prayer. We may wish for a great many things, for a good dinner, or for more suffering, or the prayer of quiet, without any imperfection, provided these are involuntary wishes. But we will will only what we have, what God's providence has arranged for us. Only no sin, we repeat, only no imperfection. This is one of the things he gets from uh, Jean-Pierre de Caussade, um, the abandonment to divine providence, giving yourself to what's happening in each moment, because it is the moment, it's where God is, so this is God's will for us. It's hard to, to think that, really, because you, you would say, well, does God really want us to be dry or distracted? Clearly not, presumably, but it's not so much that. It's just that whatever happens, whatever is going on at any moment, God ultimately is there in that moment, and it's in that sense that he wills what is happening for us. So we need to give ourselves to it not resign ourselves to it, but actively will what God wills. But don't expect it to be easy. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's, it's not in that direct one-to-one -one way, you know, he's willing every little thing that happens in us, but that the moment in which this is happening, this is where God is. So God is present to us in that moment. His will is present to us in that moment. Therefore, if we give ourselves to whatever's happening in the moment, whether it's what we want or not, then we are giving ourselves to God and his will. I think that's the idea. But I, do, I don't profess to understand all it's, it's not wanting the actual distractions. It's just wanting the state of being of where you are, I think. Yes. People sometimes talk about what they call the welcome practice. Which means, you know, if you're suffering some terrible illness or bereavement or whatever, um, the temptation would be to try and get rid of that as feeling and let, let get away from it. Um, but if you can say to yourself, I welcome this because God is in this with me, even if it's a terrible illness, um, it's a way of helping yourself to deal with it more, well, better maybe but you're not actually willing or welcoming you know, the state of having cancer. It's not, you're not welcoming that. You're welcoming the state in which you are, in which you are having cancer, because you know God is there with you in it. Um, these, these are people who haven't got yet to wanting to contemplate. These are people who are finding it impossible to meditate, remember. So uh, there may be many reasons for that whatever they are, they're in that state. They can't use the mind to think about mysteries of the faith. They can't follow the thoughts. Uh, they're, they're needing to move on from that. And that may be so for various different reasons. But whatever they, the reasons are, whether they are because they're lazy or lukewarm or that they just can't exercise their imagination anymore, that's the indication that they are to try and let go of all this thinking and move on. Um, he does make quite strongly the, the point about whether this is involuntary or 
not. Um, if it's something that you are not actively willing yourself, it's an, a distraction which will not harm you. But if it's a, something coming from somewhere else or someone else's will, which is a temptation, that could be harmful to you. So are you Personally oriented. Yes, I guess so. Yes. Well, the other type is personally oriented as well, in the sense that you're having the distraction. But you know, it just occurs. It's not that you're inviting it in or willing it. It just happens. Yeah, I know. It's all very tricky. But the tempta a temptation is coming from elsewhere, is it? Was it? Yes. People often mention in confession having bad thoughts. And I often want to say, well, okay, well, maybe this is coming from somewhere deep in you. But most thoughts occur spontaneously, whether you want them to or not, I think. You haven't exactly invited them, they're just, they're just there. So you know, it's not exactly sinful to have bad thoughts in that sense. But as you said, it's what you do with them if you follow it up and are uh, tempted into courses of action as a result. And that, clearly that could be bad. But there are things that Chapman has been saying which you know, suggest that it, it's actually okay to be there, to be uncertain about all this uh, because you know, we do have doubts and we don't know things for certain. Uh, we're not going to have time for it now, but I was going to quote a bit from one of the other texts in which he ends up, it's the letter that you can read for yourselves. If all this was explicable, uh, in the pure form there is no enjoyment, often continual worry, and yet somehow or other it's satisfying and one wants nothing else. The whole thing is perfectly inexplicable. But then, if it was explicable, it couldn't be a contact with the infinite. <laughs> yes, infinite, unknowable. We better be drawing to a close, actually. Um, we haven't got on at all to the Michaelmas letter, but I've got copies of that here for you to take and read for yourself. And on the back, uh, we have the only surviving portrait of Chapman, which is in the refectory at Downside Abbey. When I was visiting there, they have tables along the, the wall, and most people were sitting on the wall side. But I deliberately sat on the other side so I could look up at Chapman's portrait when I was having my meals there. So do take a copy of that when you go later on. It's a very, I find it a very difficult text, that one. So uh, you can struggle with it for yourself. <laughs> but it's the one, it's the one that uh, Main, John Main mentions. I'd just like to end with, uh, if you like, Chapman's end. In these letters, there are just one or two little places where he has some very good things to say about death and dying. There was a religious sister who had written to him who said that she was afraid of dying. 
I think that's quite a good thing, but you know, one could acknowledge that. And he says that when you say you're afraid of dying, this is not actually the case, because we can't get our heads around what death and dying are. If you try to imagine it, all you imagine is a blank, nothingness. So what you're afraid of is not actually the case. If death is moving on to the presence of God, it's not a blank, it's not nothingness. So our fears are of what is not true. Um, that's what he says anyway. And I find that quite reassuring myself. But there's a rather nice bit in the memoir in which um, the editor of the letters, Roger Huddleston, recalls uh, Chapman's own final day. And he's, he says here, this is where he says that um, uh, Chapman had always um, emphasized the point of uh, de Caussade uh, that, let's get this, with the soul should receive what comes to it moment by moment, abandoning itself thereto, accepting and willing everything because it comes as God's will for that soul in this moment, in this place, which is the only moment in the soul's control. This doctrine and method became Abbot Chapman's ruling principle in the last years of his life. He never tired of inculcating it upon others, holding that this abandonment to God's will was essentially active, as we've seen already, since by it the soul didn't merely resign itself to and accept whatever came to it, but willed this, and so participated actively in what God was doing in its regard at every moment. On the last day of his life, when administering the last sacraments to him, I ventured to remind him how he had always insisted upon this as essentially the right attitude for a Christian soul, and that at the hour of death it must apply without qualification. Sounds a bit of a cheek, really, doesn't it? to remind him that he had always said this. There was a long silence, and then at length he said, yes, that is true, quite true. If God sees best for me to die, what in the world should one wish to live for? Well, if you can get to the end of your life in that frame of mind and faith, you're doing very well, I should say. Good, well, thank you all for being here and contributing in the way you have. It's been very good to get that interchange. And uh, keep reading. And um, Philip uh, said he looked up on Amazon and found the book is rather expensive. Uh, but you might be able to find a cheaper second-hand copy. I mean, we've only just uh, explored one or, two, one or two of them. But you can sort of dip into it in places and just read one letter and think about it and you can get a lot from it. And as I said, it becomes a favorite book for those who know it. So if you want to explore it for yourselves. And I think his importance is, is not, not just in the fact that he's a forerunner of the more recent contemplative rediscovery with Maine and uh, Keating and so on, 
but for what he gives in himself, which is clearly somebody who is into this way. Um, at a, a time, quite some time ago. And obviously he came across lots of other people who had written to him, who were wanting to move on into the contemplative way, and was able to give them pretty good advice, I think, from his own experience and from the teaching of the tradition and people like John of the Cross, whom he particularly draws on. So it's all very good stuff. <laughs>